So, who was Ian Breakwell and uh, how does he fit into the recent history of art in the UK? I think Ian Breakwell is probably one of my favourite artists, British artists, and what I really appreciate about him is the, the richness of the formal um, work that he does and, um, and also um, the work is so full of insight and empathy and poignancy and also um, really quite kind of cheeky humour in parts mm. as well. So mm -hmm. And he was born in 1943 um, in Derbyshire in a town just sort of halfway between Derby and Nottingham, um, Long Eaton. And um, he died in 2005 from cancer. So he, he wasn't very old. He was only 62 when he died. And he made actually a, a series of really beautiful works about his, his last, um, about the experience of the illness. And there's a really wonderful and really extensive interview with um, Victoria Worsley, which they conducted as part of the British Library Oral History um, Project with, with artists, um, which is about, I think it's, 56 tapes so it's itself wow. almost like a durational Ian Breakwell performance <laughs> and they recorded that just before he died and he talks a lot about his life so if any of the gallery visitors um, become mm. more interested in his work I, I can really recommend it and all the tapes are online in the British Library mm. so you can listen to them and there he talks about his his upbringing so he was from a working class family his father was a laced machinist in uh in derby mm -hmm. and um then was unemployed for a long time while while ian breakwell was a child and i think the the, the story is quite a typical kind of post-war working class bright working class kids sort of story so he went to a very good school had a scholarship to go to a very good school mm -hmm. and then maybe untypically he decided to go to art school afterwards although he hadn't done much to art i think i get the sense when he was at school so he went to derby college of art and there he really became a, a writer and an artist mm -hmm. and uh, so he's a contemporary of um, some artists that might be a little better known like john latham for example or barbara stevini with whom he worked in the artist placement group in mm -hmm. the 70s He's sort of the same generation, I think, as, as people like Gilbert and George, for example, a similar age, or Bruce McLean or, or Barry Flanagan. Um, and uh, when he, in that interview, he talks about uh, really uh, what might be the reasons why he's not quite as, as well known as some of his contemporaries. And he, he speculates that it might be to do with the fact that he came to London relatively late so he didn't study in london uh -huh. so he arrived in london in the 70s but um he did uh he was a, a exhibiting artist from quite early on so he always had gallery representation um so he was um you know he was a, a established artist and, and a well-known artist i think amongst artist circles for for sure mm -hmm. um and he was very connected with a lot of the art movements of the period he was very interested in what's called destruction in art which was a a very big movement in the 1960s. Um, mm -hmm. Some people might be familiar with the work of Gustav Metzger, who he brought to Bristol, actually, yes. um, mm -hmm. um, when he was working in Bristol. Um, he was interested in um, in fluxes, in expanded cinema, so there's, he was also a filmmaker, um, visual poetry, and then a lot of performance work, which is what, mm -hmm. what's the work that I've been particularly interested in. Mm -hmm. um, and um, uh, and his work is really characterized by 
a real, as I said earlier, real richness of formal approaches. So he's a very accomplished, he was a very accomplished writer and author. He's a published mm -hmm. author. Mm -hmm. And um, a lot of his writing is still available to buy and in, in, you find them in uh, um, secondhand uh, bookshops. And I can really recommend his writing, mm -hmm. um, uh, particularly his diaries. Um, so he kept uh, a diary throughout his life, which became very much the basis of a lot of his um, of his uh, visual artwork as well. And in the these diaries, he has this, um, he, they are built around these observations of everyday life. So mm -hmm. they're often kind of moments um, of observation or overheard conversations, but he presents them without much, much contextualization. So they're almost like, like a curtain opens and you you watch this weird scene that, you, that remains unexplained and there's often a bit of a punchline at the end just sort of poignant kind of inside and then the curtain closes again so it's a it's like these little vignettes of kind of everyday performance and they're very beautifully written um, and have a lot of as I said earlier a lot of humor in them as well um, and so he was very, very accomplished writer, but he was also working in all sorts of media. He was a filmmaker in the 1970s, was, was a member of the London Filmmakers Co-op and made a, a series of 16 millimeter films, some of which are fantastic. Um, one of my favorites is a film called Repertory, which is from 1973, a 16 okay. millimeter film, where you just see a camera circling around a, a closed empty theater and this voiceover imagines all these wonderful goings on that would might be happening on the stage this sort of fantasy repertoire and I often think of this as I've been thinking of this piece a lot recently um, because of lockdown where all the theaters have been shut so it's like the it's like a wonderful kind of uh, um, uh, metaphor for for the situation that we've been finding ourselves in where we have just been able to imagine really what might be going on on stage um, he worked in video and uh, did a lot of television work actually which is again something that might be quite alien to us now where there's so little art on television but in the 80s and 90s he was commissioned by channel 4 when it was first started um, when it first started off um, by BBC or and also by ITV, HTV, to create uh, works for television. And um, for example, they made a television version of Continuous Diary, which was broadcast um, every evening. <laughs> so that would be every evening on Channel 4, that'd be a bit of Ian Breakwell's diary. Um, uh, he also worked in painting and drawing, did collages, installations, performance works, audio works. He had just a, a real breadth of different formal approaches and um, I think he he said that he was um, really that it was the the theme and the material that interested him first and then the medium was was trying to respond to whatever he he wanted to explore thematically um, so maybe there's also something about this the breadth of these different media in which he worked which makes it quite difficult to pin him down in a way so he's not a painter he's not a draftsman he's not a yeah, so he works in all of these different media. Um, but there's something that is really always recognizably Ian Breakwell about this work, I think. Um, so in whichever medium he works, there's always that real attention to detail, this attention to everyday life and these little kind of scenarios of everyday life. Um, he was also in all the works, there's always something about the relationship between words and images or maybe 
to be more precise, something about textual imagery and, and, and visual imagery. So a lot of his visual work often features text as well in them. So when he has photos, there's often text attached to it as well. So there's so this incorporation of text and the relationship between words and imagery is really strong in the work as well. Um, and uh, uh, he also had, and I think this is where my fascination with him comes from, he, he's always had an interest in theater. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Um, particularly non-scripted forms of performance. So he was always fascinated by vaudeville and by circus and, and also by comedians like uh, uh, Tony Hancock and Tommy Cooper were big um, heroes of his. And um, he was also very interested in magic. Um, his uncle, his father's brother was a magician who taught him magic when he was a boy. And um, so there's something about the magician about him, I think that remains um, in his later work as well. And um, he had this phase in the late 60s, early 70s, when he created a lot of performance work, um, then left that behind um, a bit. But I think you see these, these kind of theatrical um, moments in, in a lot of his subsequent work, whether that's films like Repertoire, which I mentioned, which is about this empty theater or a later piece, a much later piece that he did for television called Auditorium, where yeah. he just forms an audience. He, so you don't see what's happening on stage. All you see is the audience reacting to what, what's happening on stage. Um, and so there's always a fascination with theatre in, in all of his work and with the theatrical. And even those little diary entries, there's so much about the theatre of everyday life. You know, as, as I said, this the sense of a curtain opening up and us watching something that is never quite explained. Um, it's just sort of presented there um, for, for our um, engagement and for our observation. Fantastic. Fascinating. Fascinating. Um, uh, I was just thinking in terms of, so you described his working class background and, and some of this sort of um, richness of influences, whether that's vaudeville, comedy, um, the stage magic connection when he was when he was a little boy. Um, do you think there's something particularly English or recognisably English about his work at all? Well, I'm not English, so it's, kind of, it's a little bit hard for me to say. But people have commented on this that right. um, mm -hmm. that his a lot of his work is coming from a particular kind of um, English tradition, so mm -hmm. particular working class um, culture as well, um, and uh, the vaudeville kind of elements in it. And there, he also had a lot of interest in cricket and fishing and mm -hmm. you know, all those sort of things that we, we, we associate with an Englishman. And I think, he, yeah, in, in some respects, I guess he represented the best of in, you know, what we associate with Englishness, which is also a real kind of lovely sense of humour um, uh, in all the work, a very subtle sense of humour and sometimes also quite a crude sense of humour. But um, and, and just this incredible capacity, this with words, I mean, just yeah. a, a real, a real um, ability to put things into, um, to just um, be so pointed in, in both his visual translation and also in, in his writing. Our exhibition is centred around a screening of Breakwell's film piece, Unword, uh, which I know that you've um, that you've written about recently. Could you tell us a little bit more about it, please? Yes, Unword is a is I think a really significant piece of work. Um, 
he between 67 around 67 um i think around about the time that that ian breakwell was based in bristol and the mid 70s he made um a body of performance works um and um unward is is one of the key works as uh, that's part of that that period in his life okay. and i think they are they are as yet under considered but they're really significant in the development of performance in the in the uk and unward it's not actually one piece, strictly speaking. It was four pieces. Um, they were numbered unword one, unword three, unword uh, two, unword three. Sorry, they were numbered unword one, unword two, unword three, unword four. Okay. Unword, um, and there you can see the influence of fine art because you wouldn't you wouldn't number a theatrical piece. You wouldn't say Hamlet one, Hamlet two, oh. but you might have a painter um, titling a work untitled one untitled two so there's a sort of an indication that unword there the four events that happened under this um uh, title unword they were all connected but they were all also distinct so the first one took place in london in a bookshop compendium bookshop which was one of the kind of key mm-hmm. countercultural bookshops in london and then the second one, um, and that was quite a small um, manifestation of Unword. And then the first fully fledged one was at the ICA, the Institute of Contemporary Arts in London. Mm-hmm. So that was Unword 2. Unword 4, which was the last one that he conceived, which is why it was called 4, but it's actually the third one that was staged, which is a bit uh-huh. confusing, <laughs> that happened then in Swansea at the Swansea <laughs> University Arts Festival, and the fourth one then in Bristol. So they all happened between the late, ni- late 1969, early 1970, um, mm-hmm. around that time. And they all have elements in common. And if you watch the film, you might recognize some of these elements. Um, so the the um, stage was covered from uh, hanging from the ceiling to the to the floor to the ground were these large word sheets, he called them. So large pieces of paper covered in painted words. So he calls he called this a forest of words. So it was um, so this this forest of 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 sheets hanging down, and then Breakwell appeared in a white suit and with his mouth um, pulled down these words sheets from the ceiling to the ground. So it's almost like as if he was eating these words. And um, so gradually, if you imagine these word sheets being gradually pulled down. Um, the gradually the back of the stage was being revealed as these word sheets were coming down and at the back of the stage was a was a young woman sitting on a chair um and um once all of these word sheets were pulled down and covered the floor he then gathered all these sheets together made them into like a ball of paper covered that in black paint and then um uh, took the paper um, and covered the girl with it. So he talked about this almost like a, a robe that she was then uh, carrying. And then uh, some stagehands came on stage and carried her out of the of the room together with the with all the paper. And um, in later performances, there was also a sort of plastic like plastic um, uh, little building. Um, mm-hmm greenhouse sorry that was what I was looking for plastic greenhouse mm. with another performer in it and some newspaper so you might also um, catch that I can't remember whether you can see that in the film um, so these elements were the same in all of the different manifestations of unword um, but they were presented slightly differently each time 
But the most remarkable thing about Unword was the inclusion of film. So mm -hmm. film was included in two different ways. So first of all, it had projection of found footage. So for the for Unword, um, Ian Breakwell collaborated with a filmmaker who was based in Bristol called Mike Leggett. Mm -hmm. And they collaborated quite a few times afterwards as well. So they were um, close collaborators on a number of pieces. And Leggett had access to this found footage. So they were using like eight millimeter or 60 millimeter films of sheep shearing or of, yeah. of engines exploding. Um, so the, these kind of little uh, ped pedagogical educational films that they found, often yeah. silent films. Okay. And they were being projected um, uh, during the performance. And if you imagine the worksheets functioning like a screen, okay. so as, as Breakwell pulled them down with his teeth, effectively the projection was uh, moving further and further to the back, if you can imagine that, yeah. because, the, because the front sheets were disappearing first. And so the projection became larger and larger. So you can just get a glimpse of those projections when you look at the film. Uh, you can see a little bit of light flickering and a bit of uh, you know these, these uh, projections come into view. They're quite hard to make out because of the light situation but um yeah so there was a real sense of these these projections being very dynamic uh -huh. and that was a very much um it was quite uh it was a um an element that a number of um artists were playing with at the time with projections and performance work and it also at the time, there was a lot of interest in what we now call expanded cinema or yes, was yes. the term that was emerging at the time mm -hmm. where artists had a real interest in, in film, not just as an object, but as this really dynamic presence, as this, as this event in a way. So using the projection of film as an event, as a performance in itself. Mm -hmm. And so Unword played with that as well, sort of projecting the film onto these movable surfaces. But then the, the other uh, way in which film was important for the piece, um, and this is where Unword Film comes in, which you are showing, is that Mike Leggett was free to walk through the performance and film the what was going on in the performance at will. So he could choose wherever he wanted to go and film the performance as it was happening. That started in Unword 2. So there's no film footage of the first Unword, but it started in, at the ICA in Unword 2. And then the footage that they shot at that performance was then projected in the following performance, where again Leggett uh, shot that, uh, that event. And then the footage from that was then projected in the fourth performance. So you have this palimpsest of footage. Yeah? So each time the performance was also having footage of the previous performance being shown uh, in it. And of course, you can't see Leggett in the Unword film because he was shooting. He was shooting mm -hmm. it, but he would have been for the live audience. He would have been a really strong presence. When you see photos of Unword, you see Leggett very prominently because he was walking around the the, the stage area uh, filming. So for the audience that watched it live, he would have been a very important part of the performance. And then what happened is, oh yeah, so he used a special camera for the for the um, film so normally we have what is it 24 frames per second i think mm -hmm. it's the standard rate mm -hmm. because that's when our eye kind of makes these kind of connections and tricks us into thinking we are watching uh, a moving image rather mm -hmm. than 24 still images um so in in leggett's case he used a special camera that allowed him to shoot a, 
uh, at the rate of um, a frame every two seconds. Mm -hmm. um, this is so that he could film the entire performance. It was about, I think, just over a half an hour long, I think. Um, um, the entire performance, or slightly longer, actually, the entire performance on a hundred foot film footage. So he didn't have stock, so he didn't have to change the film halfway through. Mm -hmm. And so in order for the film to last, he shot it every, with, a, with like an image every two seconds, which is why it's this weird stuttering kind of uh, sense um, that you get in the Unword film. Um, it's almost like a, like a, a kind of a slideshow, an animated slideshow, or it reminds me a little bit of those flip books you used to get as a child when you thumb through them and you had these sort of stuttering, you know, that you get this kind of sense of uh, like stuttering motion. And when they were showing the film, oh no, maybe I should talk about the film first. So, so he, um, so he shut this, shut it at two um, frames a second. And then once they had the footage from all three performances, Unword two, three, and four, they then edited it together as a film. So the film that we now see in the exhibition, that is not a documentation of a performance. It's a, it's a fabrication of three performances in effect. And if you look very closely, they worked very hard to make it seem like it's a continuous event. But if you look closely, you can just about see that there are actually three different spaces in which they work. Um, so this is a this is a it's a recording of the performance, but also not because it's not, uh, you know, it's a it's a it's a compilation of three different events that they that they then put together and edited together. They did show onward the film a few times in the early 70s. And they used a special projector for it because it had that stuttering kind of motion. Um, so they used what was known as a specto analyst projector, which was used um, a lot in engineering and in architecture with, where you could slow down the imagery. So that would allow, for example, an architect or an engineer to really study the still image. Um, and so they used these projectors to show onward um, at the same speed at which it was filmed um, at two frames um, a, a second um, and um, two seconds a frame, sorry. And this projector made this really loud kachungs sound. So people who witnessed the very early um, uh, showings of the Unword film do remember this projector continuously going kachunk, kachunk, kachunk every time the, the, the image moved forward. Um, but then in 2004, I think, just before um, Breakwell died, Mike Leggett um, re, um, uh, restored the film and then digitized it. So, of course, what we see now is this um, is a restored and, and digitized mm -hmm. version of it. So we don't have that kind of kachang sound any longer. Mm -hmm. But the, the way that um, the, the, the film is quite a challenging watch because it is uh, challenging our perceptions um, because our eyes wants to make sense of what want to make sense of what we watch and it has this um stuttering sort of effect um this flickering effect of these these um this, these gaps in between the images and then um they used the soundtrack that they also used in the original performances which is um again some found audio footage um which is i think of language some language uh, tuition and also some um some eyesight tests mm -hmm. um, so again that was found footage that that they used in the performance um, and they used it also uh, as the audio for the film 
Um, and maybe just a, a couple more things to say about Unword. One is that the words that were being written on the sheets, if you uh, you might be able to make out a few words, they, um, they're not accidental. They came from a text work of Ian Breakwell's called Unword Manifesto. And the Unword Manifesto was a list of a lot of verbs that all started with this prefix un, which he in, invented. So... There were words like un, unappropriate, not inappropriate, unappropriate, unappropriate or unapprove, uh, unastonish, um, uncompel, uncontrol. And this is this kind of manifesto, not as a call to action, but as a sort of call to unaction, this idea of, of making good, of reversing something. And this kind of idea of something being reversed that runs through the whole performance. If, so, for example, the, the films that I mentioned earlier that were being projected, the projection of the aeronautic engine exploding, they showed that one forwards and then backwards. So it's it's so you you watch then the engine being kind of put back together if that makes sense. Um, so there he played a lot with this idea of things being kind of uh, destroyed and then being put back together again. And if you think about the whole performance, starting off with this forest of sheets that must have been extraordinary, having all these word, word sheets hanging down, and then. In, uh, by the end, everything was being taken off the stage. You know, everything had been pulled down, had been crumbled up, had been carried out. And then the film and the sound was stopped at the same time. So then you have just a silent, empty space um, at the very end. And then, of course, onward, in the next onward event, you have the reiteration of that uh, again and again. And this idea of, he called it the vanishing point of the performance. This mm -hmm. idea of everything kind of drifting to this vanishing point that was very influenced by his engagement at the time with destruction and art, where yeah. this dialectic mm -hmm. between creation and destruction and recycling was a really big issue at the time in art. And um, you see also Unword, in a way, Unword, the film is an example of that, this idea that the material that they created was, he was constantly reusing it in other contexts. So that once the events were finished, then the film became its own thing. It became its own artwork. But you also see images of Unword appear in text works, for example, or in yeah, in in other you know he he reused that material in other works, and that's a very much a, a characteristic of all of Ian Breakwell's um, oeuvre that he he has this way of that motifs reappear or that certain elements are being reused in other works. So there's a real sense of these these works also being in kind of conversation with one another. So if you look around, there's quite a few kind of unword related kind of artworks um, where images of him in a white suit, pulling down the work, work sheets and so on, appear in, in some of his uh, photographic works and his paintings and so on. So he says, um, he talked about that at the time as being, it wasn't about the end product, it was about the process. It's all about disassembling and dismantling and recycling, everything being a process with no real end to it all. Um, and I think Unword is a really uh, great kind of manifestation of that sense of, of constant um, recycling, recycling of materials. I'm really fascinated by this, the, um, in the performance, this female figure at the back of the, um, 
word sheets who gets covered in the the the, the sheets sort of once they've been blackened out so all the words all the language has been scraped or sort of you know disappeared from them i believe she's wearing a straight jacket as well is that right and yes, she doesn't yes. say anything I'm, I'm very intrigued about yeah the symbolism of of her role in the performance is sort of um silent figure really at the back that perhaps everything is has originally come from but then everything's being stripped away you know to reveal underneath um yeah well i think we can all make our own little you know our own um, interpretations of that i haven't uh, read any any explanation um, of, of this figure that he ever gave um but and later on, she was joined by this other person in the greenhouse who was silent. I think I believe Ian Breakwell was also silent during the performance. So they were they just had the the audio uh, track on. But oh. yeah, it's an intriguing figure. This mm -hmm. the silent woman who sort of bears it on and takes it all back. Mm -hmm. I, mean, I don't know. And it's in straight jacket and it's mm -hmm. been covered in the, these words. Yeah, it's a very enigmatic kind of symbol, mm -hmm. symbolic figure. Um, so Ian Breakwell uh, came to Bristol as a student, as she said. Um, I know he programmed at what was then the Bristol Arts Centre, where, where one of the unwords was 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 filmed, um, and he certainly presented his work at Arnolfini on several occasions through the through the nineteen seventies and eighties. Um, I'd love to hear a little bit more about your thoughts on um, experimental and progressive art. Um, in the more quote-unquote provincial regions of the UK, um, away from London. Yeah, he came to Bristol to do an art teacher training, I think, at the at the West of England College of Art, which is now part of UWE. And he he also taught on the foundation course in Taunton um, uh. with uh, John Hilliard, who's a, um, a filmmaker, and Rosefin Kelsey. They were teachers there together uh, for wow. a little while. And uh, yeah, the story of how he became involved in Bristol Arts Centre is, is very funny. He talks about it in the interview I mentioned earlier with Victoria Worsley. Um, the, the story goes, that's how he uh, uh, remembers that, that he left a comment in the, um, in the visitor's book to complain about an exhibition that was on. And then they got in touch with him and said, well, you think you can do better? Come and be our gallery programmer and so he worked in the Bristol Arts Centre for I don't know for however long he was in Bristol for uh, a year and a bit and uh, I think worked behind the bar and also programmed the the gallery and uh, programmed um, uh, the theatre space as well and the Bristol Arts Centre for people who don't know was it's now the Cube I think so mm -hmm. it was um, it was formed in the mid-60s so only just before Ian Breakwell arrived um, and he, I think his time there finished when he programmed a work by, by Ivor Davies, the Welsh artist who he was good friends with. And Ivor Davies showed a work also inspired by destruction and art, which included explosions. And, um, and that set the, the screen in the uh, Bristol Arts Centre on fire. So then I think they, they kind of, um, that kind of came to the relationship soured. But there's something interesting about the, the, the scene at the time. I mean, obviously, Breakwell then moved to London and became very much part of the London scene. Um, but I think at the time in the late 60s and early 70s, um, I think it, um, there was a strong influence of the art schools on this mm -hmm. development of regional scenes. Mm -hmm. uh, what was happening uh, after the Second World War is that in the UK, these new approaches to art education developed and they were pioneered in particular at those uh, um, 
provincial in inverted commas, these regional um, art schools. So even though in London, of course, also had really important art colleges like St. Martin's, I'm not saying there weren't, but these approaches um, that, for example, basic design, um, it was called basic design, which was an approach that was influenced by the Bauhaus and really tried um, for students, um, pr previously students in British art schools had to do very academic training and um, and you know drawing from live and all of those kinds of um, um, quite academics of skills, and basic design was very much um, try to be in tune with contemporary art making, encourage students to focus more on, on process and on materials rather than product. Um, I was very engaged also with new materials, um, with design aspects, with um, also with abolishing these old um, artist separations between sculpture and painting mm. and encouraging students to work across different media. And you can see the influence. So Ian Breakwell in Derby was, was taught in, in these basic design approaches. And you can see the impact on Breakwell's generation on working you know, across media in, in, in the way that somebody like Ian Breakwell did. And so Newcastle was a was a really influential college for this basic art um, approach, as was Cardiff, Leeds was a really important art college, Reading, Maidstone, Brighton. So you have all of these regional art colleges um, developing all these new approaches, artists studying there. And um, through, of course, um, then a whole kind of culture of, of venues and, um, and opportunities then develops around that so it, it, some of these infrastructures then emerge around these art, artists scene because artists decide to stay in the places where they studied or they are of course also teachers there and so these so you see new venues springing up um, and, and this this local scene um, uh, emerging but there's also an, an impact that um, at the time for example, through publications. So um, Ian Breakwell himself was really um, involved in, in small-scale publishing. Um, and there was a whole network of little magazines, as they were called at the time. And Ian Breakwell himself, when he was a student in Derby, um, published one of these magazines called Exit. And he also published in other people's magazines. And through these publications, people were very well networked and they actually knew what other people were doing elsewhere, uh, not just, of course, within the UK, but also internationally. So there was actually quite a good sort of information hub going on with people being quite connected. And Breakwell also visited London repeatedly to also when he was a student to see exhibitions there. So when he was in Britain, he brought people from London, like, for example, Gustav Metzger, um, to do um, um, to show work in, in at the Bristol Arts Centre. He had very little budget, but he showed even Andy Warhol and Duchamp, I think. So it was quite remarkable what, what wow. he achieved in the in the short time he was there. But I do think that the, the 60s and 70s in particular, you have this really um a vibrant a local scene emerging which is connected through publications through exhibitions through collaborations driven by these regional really strong regional art schools um and um and then leading to the development you also have for example very strong student arts festivals in a lot of the university towns um, and then you see these new venues emerging, like Anofini or like Chapter Art Center in Cardiff, 
venues that are still with us today. So they're all part of that um, that um, emergence of this new uh, kind of infrastructure around these new approaches uh, of art making. Certainly, I know that um, locally, Arnold Finney's um, back in the 60s and 70s had a very close relationship with the Bath Academy of Art in, in Caution. And I know certainly artists like um, Michael Craig Martin, who were teaching there at the time, who then had exhibitions at Arnold Finney. And yeah, I guess it's it's sort of, it's fascinating for someone of my generation where I think the focus was so much on the idea of going to London for, for, for art education, whereas, you know, sort of several decades ago, this sense that there was this sort of really avant-garde, um, uh, you know, sort of centres really in, in sort of much more rural or, or provincial or, or regional cities and towns. It's fascinating. Yes. I mean, he does, um, Breakwell does talk uh, in the in interview about um, regretting not having gone to London earlier. So, um, so I think maybe he was slightly exibus of the generation. He would have been at art school in the early 60s to mid 60s. And maybe it was just, just emerging, this regional scene was really just emerging at the time, I think. So then artists in the 70s, um, where this regional scene had really become incredibly important. I mean, artists would go to Leeds because Leeds was, Leeds College of Art was at the time known as the Bauhaus of the North. And it was this idea that this was the most progressive place where you could possibly study art at the time. So, um, yeah, so so it was emerging in the in the period when, when um, Breakwell was a student, but he did often talk about the fact that he wished he had gone to to London earlier, but he we kept a really close relationship with with artists based in London. I sometimes think that given how few art world people seem to know very much about Ian Breakwell, that his legacy is nevertheless really strong. Is there anything you would say about his influence on younger artists? I think his his work anticipated a lot of contemporary um, art, art preoccupations, both formally and also in terms of his in, thematic interests, and sometimes maybe that legacy is not um, is not recognised or even not even known um, how much of that work um, kind of had its roots in 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 the work that Breakwell and and some of his contemporaries were doing. Mm. I mean, Breakwell himself uh, mentioned um, that he saw a connection between his diary work or that he thought that his diary work had paved the way for 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 example artists such as Tracy Emin yes. um, but then but I think Emin's work is so much more autobiographically confessional in the way that that mm. Breakwell's work isn't so his diary work is never about that really it's much more his observations um, of the world around him rather than him, of himself um, but he certainly saw that sort of, sort of connection there um, but I think um, in terms of his interest in the everyday, um, his interest also in public space and observing people in public space, I think that's a, that's very much a, a really um, important kind of vibrant sort of artistic concern um, now, I think. Um, his multimedia approach, I think, also resonates with a, with a lot of artists working today. And also some of the work he's done around socially, what we would, would now call socially engaged art. So he was involved in the 1970s with Artist Placement Group, which is the, um, the initiative 
that John Latham and Barbara Stevini were spearheading, where they placed artists in um, organizations, sometimes in businesses, but also mostly actually in governmental organizations, kind of uh, governmental departments, um, like artist residencies in these sort of in these uh, contexts. And Ian Breakwell did some very important ones. He worked, for example, in Broadmoor and Rumpton hospitals as an artist in residence. And from that came his interest in, in um, mental health um, kind of, um, and he made a very important piece with um, Kevin Coyne, the, the musician Kevin Coyne, who he was at Derby Art College with, I think they were friends right from student days, they collaborated on a piece called The Institution, which was informed by this residency that, that um, Ian Breakwell had as part of the artist placement groups um, uh, pro uh, program in hospitals. Um, also his embrace of mass media, his, his work with television uh, is again something I think that really resonates uh, today. Um, so I think, um, yeah, his work, really this this um feels very fresh this is why what, what i love about it when you look at it i mean it is there is of course you recognize a lot of the the former preoccupations of the 1970s and so on that are reflected in his work but at the same time it feels very contemporary because of the because of his engagement with um everyday life and the ordinary kind of performances of everyday life and his his approach to form and his inventiveness of, of form. And I, I was actually thinking about him quite a lot over the lockdown period and wondering what he would have made of this and what he would have created in this situation because he made pieces, for example, his Walking Man diary piece from the mid-1970s where he was from his flat in Smithfield he observed the same man walking around Smith Smithfield's market every day. And he documented this man's movement every single day. And there's like these diary entries over a, a period of several years of this one man walking around his neighborhood. And I think this attention to his attention to detail, his attention to ordinariness, but also to repetition and his way of, of working with repetition and seriality and kind of creating kind of interest through this accumulation of, of everyday occurrences and their, their repetition, I think, um, feels really vibrant now. And I would have loved to have seen what he would have created Absolutely. during lockdown.